Hey guys. Hey, I'm sorry about the disappearing act I pulled. Part of the reason I started this podcast was to have a hobby while my husband was out on rotation. However, I just didn't anticipate how busy I was going to be with my little one while he was gone. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder, and let me tell you, I missed my person. For those of you who don't know, I'm Brandy, and this is True Crime Spirits, the podcast where I tell you if you guys a true crime tale while trying a new adult beverage. Now before we jump in, I do have some news for you guys. While it's true I haven't been posting any new episodes, I haven't just been sitting around. I've been working behind the scenes because frankly, it was just time to get things done. I've created a new website because now I'm creating more and more online content And I just need a website for you guys to access all of it. It still needs a little bit of work, but it is up. So go check it out. It's at brandystruecrimeparadise.com. I know, I know, it's a mouthful, but it is what it is. So let's get into this. Tonight I decided to go with a boozy eggnog because, you know, the holidays. Uh... I love eggnog, but since I'm getting out of my comfort zone, I'm going to try one I've never had. Okay, so when I started started recording this, I assumed that there would be so much eggnog for me to choose from. I mean, I remember many holidays back home going to the local spirit shop, and there would be just a whole wall dedicated to eggnog. But when I got to my local spirit shop, there was only one type of eggnog, and I refused to drink Evan Williams. So I'm actually going to be making my own. I'm using a Christmas white rum and brandy combination. They provided a little recipe for homemade eggnog with the drink, so... Wish me luck. Now, for my first attempt, the eggnog honestly wasn't bad. I want to give it three stars, but I really have to give it two. So the recipe calls for two and a half ounces of rum. And I thought that, I just thought that wasn't enough. Not for six servings at least. To me, an eggnog is a winter drink. There doesn't need to be enough booze to taste, but there does need to be enough to keep one warm on a chilly night. So I added an extra shot. Overall, I should have fluffed the egg whites longer because the eggnog didn't turn out to be as thick as I wanted. I don't think that the extra shot played into that, but I also never made eggnog before. So I really can't say for sure. Like I said, it really isn't bad. Anyway, moving on to the reason we're all here tonight. Tonight I have a tale that is especially heartbreaking. Um, Of course, most of the cases I have covered thus far have all been heartbreaking. But there's just something about this one. Maybe it's the fact that it takes place on Christmas Eve. Or 
maybe it's because most of the victims are children. I don't know. Anyway, let me take you back to Calumet, Michigan in the year 1913 to a mining town that I feel like would have its own museum dedicated to itself if it had more than 800 people. At first, I thought I was going to... Um, at first, I thought I wasn't going to be able to find any information on this case. I mean, there are really only a handful of articles about the incident itself, and apparently when they decided to digitize all the newspapers, no one taught this person how to scan the papers. At least three useful articles were partially ineligible. And as I started searching, I realized this, this incident is actually under a completely different name. That's when I hit pay dirt. I must admit, I was confused at first. I was just having a hard time grasping at what really happened. It wasn't until I saw the documentary starring Arlo Guthrie when I realized what had really happened. This whole time I was thinking, oh, these poor people died in a fire. And then I find out that's not at all what happened. So before I give the whole case away, let's just dive right in. Like I said earlier, we are heading to Calumet, Michigan. And this episode is going to be a bit of a history lesson. We've all heard how crazy the early 20th century was. Death and mayhem, mobsters and bootleggers, and Calumet was no exception. To really understand what happened here, we have to talk about what kind of town Calumet was. Calumet was located in the wilds of Michigan's Upper Peninsula on land that juts out into Lake Superior. And it was settled in 1864 under the name Red Jacket. This was the name for the Native American chief of the Seneca tribe. Calumet quickly grew into one of Midwest's richest boom towns due to its vast deposits of copper. In 1867, it was finally incorporated into a town. These copper mines were particularly rich. The Calumet and Hecla Mining Company produced more than half of the USA's copper from 1871 through 1880. Calumet Township was an ethically diverse community. 90% of the population was of foreign descent. There were Croatians, Finns, Swedes, Italians, Cornish, Hungarians, Polish, Australians, and even Germans flocked to the area to work the deep ground mines. And by the turn of the century, Calumet had a population of 4,668. The township contained Calumet, or Red Jacket, Laurium, Hecla, and South Hecla, and it had a population of 25,991 souls. The town wasn't actually legally named Calumet until 1829, when Red Jacket and surrounding company towns were reincorporated as the town of Calumet. And to be even more confusing, the area once officially known as Calumet was then renamed to Lorium. However, 
I'm just going to refer to this area as Calumet. So don't worry about trying to keep up with this ridiculous game of hot potato they are playing with these names. In 1913, Calumet suffered from the Copper Country Strike of 1913, and the population began to decline. Now, I'm sure I heard about this in history classes, but it's been over 15 years, and I barely paid any attention in history, so I really cannot be sure. I don't remember ever learning about the Copper Country Strike. So I took to Google and I investigated. The Copper Country strike was a major strike that affected all copper mines in the Copper Country of Michigan. The strike organized by the Western Federation of Miners was the first unionized strike within the Copper Country. It was called to achieve goals of shorter work days, higher wages, union recognition, and to maintain family mining groups. The strike lasted just over nine months. And I'm going to go further into the strike and what caused it because it absolutely does play a part in this horrific tragedy we're gonna be talking about tonight. So like I said, it's 1913 and Calumet is choking on anger and hatred, ignited and fueled by one of the bitterest labor disputes the nation has ever seen. The struggle resulted in a catastrophe that was even compared to the sinking of the Titanic. Calumet was considered a true company town. In 1914, the U.S. Labor Department official described conditions in the copper country as benevolent feudalism. Calumet and Hecla Mining Company owned all the land. It leased houses to its employees for $6 a month and provided free Lake Superior water. It rented out the property for stores, churches, and schools. None of the land was ever sold so that the company could snatch it right back for whatever reason they see fit. The town was completely electric with a cheap and efficient streetcar system a beautiful opera house that was nationally renowned and more churches per capita than any other city in America. By this time, the average mine depth was 4,000 feet and the copper was not as pure. Simply put, the company was having to dig dip deeper to get less. And this is where the dreaded, quote, widow maker comes into play. It was a one-man drill, a heavy, cumbersome piece of equipment that the underground workers claimed was dangerous. And according to many, this is what caused the strike. But in actuality, there were many factors. A lot of it had to do with wages. February 1913, the miners sat down with the no the miners sat down to negotiate wages healthcare, housing, and whatnot, they shoot their shot, you know, they throw out a number, the company turned them down, and then after that, there's a lot of back and forth for a few months, and on July 23rd, 1913, the miners struck. On that first day, 
there were three documented injuries. In each case, the victim was a Cornish shift boss who was hit by flying rocks. This open defiance shocked the mine bosses. At this point, the damage mostly consisted of a couple of flooded mine shafts and some broken windows, and the only injuries were bruised ribs and some cuts and abrasions. Woodbridge Ferris, said to be the worst governor, reacted immediately. He used his most powerful tool at his disposal, the National Guard. He mobilized the entire Michigan unit, which had approximately 2,500 men, and ordered it to the Copper Country. They set up tents everywhere, in front of the mines, on the street corners, in the parks, even on church lawns. The guard was there to maintain order and protect property. Governor Ferris made it very clear that the soldiers were not to act as a police force. So good old Sheriff Cruz decided to bring in some outside help. Even though the sheriff had deputized 150 local citizens, he heavily relied on a New York detective agency, the Waddell Mahan Company, which primarily specialized in supplying strike breakers in labor disputes. This little fact will become much more important later. The Waddell men were dubbed secret service operatives by the sheriff. They were given full authority and they openly carried guns. The strikers in Calumet immediately felt the presence of the Waddell men. Union described them as strong armed men, thugs and murderers. The Federation strike newspaper even reported them as tall, muscular men of the prize fighter variety. That's an odd description. Even Governor Ferris disapproved of this firm, and he really wasn't happy to learn of their involvement with the dispute. But Sheriff Cruz didn't care, and he kept them around, and this caused unrest within the town. The Waddell men would stop miners at random and beat them. They would invade homes without warrants in the middle of the night, terrorizing entire families. Dozens of strikers were hauled off to jail, charged with intimidation, trespassing, and assault. In all, more than 500 people were arrested. Almost all of them were striking miners. On August 15, in Painesdale, another town just outside of Calumet, two deputies and four Waddell agents visited a boarding house. It is assumed that these men were there to arrest a pair of strikers who, in defiance of a deputy's order, had earlier walked across mine property on their way home. Investigation revealed that the men had not trespassed with any criminal intent. They were just taking a shortcut home. In front of the wooden building, the Waddell men encountered the two strikers. A struggle ensued and the strikers fled inside. The Waddell men and the two deputies surrounded the house and began firing indiscriminately through the doors and windows. When the shooting died down, the two men had been killed, another wounded, and a baby in her mother's arms had been grazed. 
These would later be known as the Seberville Murders. Warrants were issued for the six law officers. But remember good old Sheriff Cruz? He allowed those men to escape to an adjoining county. Four of the six men were eventually tried and found guilty of manslaughter. But that didn't happen until the next year. And then only after the sheriff abused his power to keep them from coming to justice. And the violence continued. In September, a deputy and a striker died under questionable circumstances. Indiscriminate beatings and shootings were commonplace, almost daily occurrences. The U.S. The U.S. Labor Department conducted an investigation and they concluded that the deputy sheriffs and the Waddell men acted with great brutality toward the strikers. They even found that in many cases, they would beat women with clubs and nightsticks. On December 7th, there was another boarding house massacre. Three strike breakers, all Cornish, were killed in their beds when an unknown person armed with high-powered rifles fired some 40 rounds into what the strikers called the English Scab Boarding House. The Federation was the most obvious suspect, but Prosecutor Lucas believed the murders were committed by Waddell thugs in an effort to turn public opinion against the Union. Still to this day, the murder was never solved. Back to why we're here. It's mid-December now, and the five months of striking, had, of striking had taken their toll on the miners. Strike benefits always promised by the Federation never seemed to materialize, and the CNH had started to serve notices on the miners who rented houses on company land. Merchants began refusing credit, even for groceries, and it would be a grim Christmas for everyone, but especially for the children. So to lift their spirits, the Women's Auxiliary of the Western Federation of Miners organized a party. The women spent weeks sewing scarves and mittens for the children. They made up little bags of candy, and they rehearsed a Mother Goose play. The Christmas party was held in the Italian Hall, a large two-story wooden building a block away from the fire station. Its lower floor housed an Atlantic and Pacific grocery store and a saloon, but upstairs at the top of the eight-foot wide stairway located on the outside of the building was a ballroom complete with a balcony, a stage, and a small kitchen. People began arriving shortly after noon on December 24th. By 2 o'clock, more than 500 people had crowded into the hall. Most pressed around the stage where Big Annie and several other ladies were helping Santa Claus distribute snacks and candy to the children. John Burkar, 13 years old, was the son of a striker from Kearsarge, a nearby village. He had a headache and was making his way from the stage to his side window for a breath of fresh air. He almost bumped into a man with a long overcoat and a white citizen's alliance pin. 
Mary Castala came to the party with her 12-year-old daughter and her brother-in-law's three children. Miss Castala's husband wasn't a union member, but her daughter really wanted to go to the party that day. So she used a union card that she had borrowed from her brother-in-law. And while she was visiting with a neighbor in front of the stage, she had a clear view of the door that led into the ballroom from the stairway. She saw a man with a dark mustache who was neatly dressed in a cap and a dark overcoat with the collar turned up and a white button. According to Mary, the man yelled, fire, run, and then he opened his arms in a gesture to get everyone to run. Instantly, there was a panic. The crowd surged toward the stairwell. Mary grabbed her daughter to keep the girl from being swept up in the rush for the exit. Miss Teresa Kaiser was standing at the edge of the stage, helping Big Annie Clemenic distribute gifts when the false alarm was shouted. Mrs. Kaiser jumped down and ran to the man who was yelling fire. She grabbed him by his shoulders, shaking him, yelling, What are you saying? There is no fire. The man ignored her and continued yelling fire. Unable to turn back to the crowd, Mrs. Kaiser inched her way back toward the stage, twisting through the press of people. And as she pulled herself up on the stage, she heard screams and sobs and shouts from the stairway. She sat down at the piano and began to play, hoping to calm the crowd. This part, this part always just kind of reminds me of um, that scene in Titanic, you know, where the musicians are in their life vests and they see everybody, you know, freaking out and like, oh my God, the boat's going down. And they just decide to play music, you know, while these people are, one, freaking out or they're being hoisted onto life boats. And it's just, I get, I get the meaning behind it. I'm not making fun of that. It's just very weird to think about or to see somebody, you know, just playing music while all of this, uh, you know, craziness and chaos is going on around them. So it just seems unreal to me. Um, anyway, so when the mystery man shouted fire, John Ayuno, a miner from Tamarack, was standing at the top of the landing. He turned to look and was immediately caught up in the rush. Ayuno was pushed all the way down to the bottom of the stairs and knocked unconscious. Also on the stairway was another striker, John Antilla. He tried to stop the stampede unsuccessfully. And with all the shouting and yelling, it was impossible to make your voice heard. Those who reached the door first were horrified to find that they were, they were shut. And in the mass hysteria and confusion, they were unable to tell the massive herd rushing the door. Harder, people pushed against each other and the solid doors that wouldn't budge. Children and parents slipped and got trampled on. People suffocated from the pressure of people packing themselves into the stairway. The only breath you could breathe in that breathe in that hallway was to push yourself off the wall with all your might and then quickly suck in a breath of air before the force of the other bodies pushed your face back against the wall. 
This quote came from Walter Lotte in a 1980 in interview shortly before his death. Lotte was 13 years old when he was caught up in the stairwell crush. In minutes, 74 people died in the stairwell. All but 11 of them were children. Excuse me. All but 11 of them were children. Yeah, you're right. Excuse me. <laughs> At the bottom of the stairway, the first rescuers found bodies piled four and five high, wedged together so tightly that it was impossible to untangle them from the street entrance. Instead, the firemen and rescue workers had to use ladders to get to the second floor and then began removing victims from the top downward. As the dead were pulled from the pile in the stairwell, they were carried to the town hall, which turned into a makeshift morgue. Some families lost more than one child. Other children were orphaned when their parents died. On Christmas Day, the citizens of Calumet began making plans to bury their dead. Strikers had dug multiple long trench-style graves at Lakeview Cemetery, about two miles outside of Calumet. Some of the graves were for Protestants, some of them were for Catholics, and the remaining victims were buried in other graves. The funerals were held in five different churches, in the native tongue of each nationality. The services lasted for six hours after which the procession poured into the street. Thousands of people marched along the road to the cemetery. Union men hoisted the children's caskets while the horse-drawn sleds or hearses carried the adult coffins. 20,000 spectators flocked to Calumet, standing four deep on the street as the procession passed them. Hundreds of iron miners from other ta upper towns had arrived by train to join the procession. There was even a brass band and chorus made up of miners singing hymns. It was a grayside service that stretched past sunset. Eulogies were delivered in Croatian, Finnish, and English. Photos show a huge crowd remained for the speeches, with some climbing trees for a better view. Sympathies, telegrams, and reporters began arriving from all around the world. The Citizens Alliance got together a collection to aid the families of the victims and raised $25,000. It was taken to the Federation president, who refused the offering outright. He called it blood money. That night, some 25 men, most of them openly wearing Alliance buttons, stormed Moyer's room in the Scott Hotel in nearby Hancock. They beat him, shot him in the back with a small caliber handgun, and then dragged him, bleeding profusely, more than a mile through the streets to the railway station. Although some of them were waving a hangman's noose, Moyer was thrown onto a Chicago-bound train and told never to return to the Copper Country. His bullet wound turned out to be minor, and the next day, following surgery, he told the nation's press from his hospital bed in Chicago what had happened to him. Meanwhile, people in Calumet told, another, told one another in a half dozen languages that the real reason the Alliance had tried to kill Moyer was because he had learned about what happened on Christmas Eve. 
Moyer, the rumor had it, found out that the deputies held the doors of the Italian hall shut and even clubbed people as they tried to leave. Days later, there was an official inquest. Of the 70 witnesses who testified, 18 said they heard someone shout fire. Of those, nine said they actually saw the man who sounded the alarm. And six of the nine testified that he was wearing a white button believed to be the insignia of the pro-company Citizen Alliance. Rumor emerged later that the Italian hall's doors were designed to open inward, preventing the panicked crowd from pushing them outward into the street. Also, the suggestion in Woody Guthrie's 1913 massacre song that mining company thugs were holding the door shut from the outside that night. Those rumors were baseless and they were quickly disproved by the inquest. Witnesses testified that deputies had worked to exhaustion trying to get people out and to untangle the bodies of the stairwell. Oh my goodness, I have no idea where that yawn came from, guys. Excuse me. But the hatred and the mistrust was so deep that these rumors are still believed by many to this day. Officially, the inquest jury never did place blame. The stampede was caused by some person or persons unknown to the jury at this time, raising the alarm of fire within the hall read their formal verdict on January 2nd, 1914. Even though the inquest jury did not mention the Citizens Alliance, they basically exonerated it from any responsibility. They said that the only persons producing a union card or being vouched for by a union member were allowed into the party. However, there just wasn't any testimony during the inquest stating anything otherwise. The union cards were checked carefully at the start of the party, sure, but latecomers reported that the crowd was so great and there was so much confusion that they went right in without showing any identification. Even patrons from the saloon below the hall testified that they walked up the stairs to look at the party without ever being challenged. But all that was moot by then. The grief that enveloped the copper country numbed even the sense of outrage. After that, there didn't seem to be much left to strike for. When they buried the 74 victims of the Italian Hall disaster, Calumet started to die. The will of the miners was as broken as their spirits, and so was the Union. On Sunday, April 13, the strike officially ended when the miners voted 3,104 to 1,636 to return to work. The next morning, hundreds of them turned in their union card at the mine entrances. Almost overnight, the union pulled up stakes and left town, heading to a new, heading to new organi heading to new organizing fields in Ohio and Pennsylvania. In 1916, the Western Federation plagued by dwindling membership and eager to distance itself from the tragic violence of Calumet, changed its name to the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. But never again did it become a significant labor force, and in 1967, it was absorbed by the United Steelworkers.
For many of the strikers left behind in Calumet when the strike fizzled out in the spring of 1914, returning to the mines would have been an act of personal treason. Trainloads began leaving the Copper Country, heading to the industrialized cities of Detroit, Cleveland, and Chicago. And by mid-1914, when Henry Ford introduced the $5 a day wage, as many as 850 people were leaving Calumet each week. The old Italian hall itself was raised in 1984, and the village park at the site was designed a few years later. The two lots on either side are owned by the, by the NPS's Keweenaw National Historical Park, which helps the village with maintenance and interpretive work. There have been improvements made over the years, a wayfinding plaque about the Italian hall disaster tells Visitors, the basic story, and the old hall's sandstone and brick arches stand at the site as a silent marker to the 74 deaths. Plantings and benches make it a contemplative spot. A 10-tall foot, a 10-foot-tall memorial was installed at the park carrying the name of each and every victim. While I was researching, I found out, oddly enough, that on Friday, May 22nd, 2021, a fire was reported in the 100 block of 5th Street. 12 local fire departments ended up responding to this fire. It was the Ah Village Fire, the Bootjack Fire, the Calumet Township Fire, Calumet Village Fire, the Dollar Bay Fire, Hancock Fire, Huffton Fire, Hubel Fire, Lake Linden Fire, Lorian Fire, Quincy Franklin Hancock Township Fire, and Tamarack City Fire. Is that a lot of, like, fire departments? I, I don't know. Like, that's, it, it's insane to me to think that 12 fire departments responded to this call. You know, is that normal? Do, do they typically drive out in droves like that? Well, regardless, the buildings from 108 to 125th Street collapsed during the fire and were considered a total loss. Over 30 people lost their homes, as many of those buildings had apartments above them. And the cause of the fire is unknown. Anyway, guys, I'm out of here. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. And you can follow my page at True Crime Spirits. Follow me on Twitter at Crime Spirits. Check out my Instagram at Bumbazzle. Or shoot me an email at truecrimespirits at gmail.com. You can now follow my website at brandytruecrimeparadise.com. You can find my podcast on most platforms. So if you like what you heard, like and subscribe. Leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you guys. So stay safe out there and good night.